great. Sensational. Terrific. What is it? I told you. Scientology. Are you with me? Not exactly with you, but somewhere nearby. Oh. This is Cybercrimology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. My name is Michael, and I like cool tech devices like smartphones, but I also think that they're scary. The amount of information that they collect is anxiety-inducing, and so is the harm that information can do to someone who has just a normal need to keep things private. For someone who has an extraordinary need, such as someone in an abusive relationship, or perhaps a public figure who draws the attention of the ill-intentioned, the harms can be deadly. So why must we accept technology as a double-edged sword? Why can't it just be a single-edged knife from the kitchen instead? Dr. Bridget Harris returns this episode to talk about efforts to make technology safer. Dr. Harris is a senior lecturer in the Faculty of Law at Australia's Queensland University of Technology and has produced some interesting and really insightful work in this area over the past couple of years. But in particular, I wanted to ask her about her thoughts on the Australian government's e-safety commissioner. This is an independent office that was set up following an act of law back in 2015 with the mandate of keeping Australian children safe. But after just two years, that was extended to safety for all Australians. The eSafety Commissioner will have enhanced powers that will take effect on the 23rd of January 2022. They have quite the task in front of them to responsibly implement the powers that they've been granted and to achieve the outcomes that they've been tasked with. We aren't going to talk about those new powers. Perhaps there'll be something to come back to once we see how they're used. But if the efforts they've put into safety by design so far is any indication, we could all be happily surprised. This is a proactive set of principles and tools to enable IT services designers and providers to design in protections against abusive use. Now, I could continue to sound important while reading things off the website, but you can go and read it for yourself. The links are all there in the show notes. Let's get to finding out more about what this is all about with our guest, Dr. Harris. Let's drop into the interview here as she's getting me up to speed on the eSafety Commissioner and what they do. It's not just making tech safe when it's already exists. They do a lot of work around sort of prevention, design, development tools and resources. They're really geared to engaging with different community groups. They do have some regulatory powers, which is sort of a unique aspect. And they're really, I think, driving a lot of work in this space alongside we've got a fantastic non-government organisation, WESNET, that particularly in the domestic violence space is, is also leading. But the eSafety Commissioner has done a lot of great work around uh, young people, kids and technology, around uh, people with cognitive and sexual disabilities, around domestic and family violence survivors, around people who experience age sexual abuse, Um, So they're really thinking about uh, different vulnerable groups or different people who've been affected by technology in negative ways and ways that we need to address that, ways we can make tech safer because they really recognise that, you know, tech is such a key part of our lives. It makes lifestyle easy. We need it for leisure, communication, work, education, civic participation. And so we have to find a way to use tech safely. And tech has traditionally been really geared around speed and um, ideas of inclusivity, but often hasn't been inclusive and often hasn't been safe for people. So it's really about trying to use technology in positive ways and, and positively affect change. How did you come to have some kind of working relationship with with eSafety? Because it's not always smooth working with the government. So I first met members of eSafety Women, which is a a division of eSafety, the eSafety Commissioner, uh, at different domestic violence 
events. And so they were coming along and really keen to work with advocates and to learn more about how tech had been weaponized and how it could be used positively. Uh, so I met them in those kind of contexts and I'd run a couple of um, events that eSafety was part of. And then this was one of a number of different research agendas that they developed that we then took part in around women with cognitive or intellectual disabilities who experience tech abuse. A colleague of mine's done really fantastic work with a team on children and tech abuse in the context of DB. So it's just one of the programs they developed. And so we were doing this, this research, which was really to provide an evidence base and resources uh, for this particular issue. Uh, and they were just really wonderful to work with. We had a lot of complications because it was uh, a bit COVID and, and lockdown in some of the jurisdictions we were working in. And we were really had a vision about how we wanted to do the research, I guess, kind of ethically and ideologically. And they were really supportive of that. And I've just loved what they've done with the resources. They've made some great guides for women and also for workers. And they've really continued to push for change. So to get industry, for instance, to be much better at responding to tech abuse, making it easier for people who experience tech abuse to report and trying to consider their needs when designing and developing tech. They had an interest in better understanding victimisation of women with cognitive impairments. I think that's probably an underserved area or an, an overlooked area. Yeah, so it absolutely is. As far as we know, it's the first uh, research to focus on on this issue. And what I think they're great at doing is is finding knowledge and evidence deficits and looking at what they can do better. And so it was really to develop that and develop resources. So we were working with services in the DV space and also some disability services and we're engaging women with cognitive and intellectual impairments and what we talked about was how they use technology, what they liked about technology, how technology had been used to harm them or make them feel uncomfortable, what they had done in those instances, so who had they sought assistance from or support and what were the challenges when that happened, what were the challenges when they were help-seeking, what were the challenges when they were trying to address those issues, and their ideas for what should happen. So what did they think should happen in the community? What did they think should be changed in, in services, for police, for tech agencies, essentially to prevent harm and better support them? And what we found was that there were a lot of uh, similar forms of abuse that we see in the broader community. So there are, are things like harassment online. There is intimate partner abuse through technology, but there's also ways that their impairments are targeted. So there might be, for instance, targeting, you know, assistive technology or, or damaging um, hearing aids, those kind of things. Uh, and also while we, we often unfortunately see people who experience tech abuse encouraged to change their behaviours and to stop using technology, it's probably really elevated with this group. They're really, really a, a way that is often seen to be helpful is to restrict their technology. And that's, of course, really problematic because we know that tech has such a big role in our lives. And for women with cognitive and intellectual impairments or intellectual impairments, it is really key for building friendships, maintaining contact with family, for finding intimate partners, for, for leisure activities online. And when they had those channels cut off, you know, it, it really could isolate them much further. There were a lot of negative impacts on their lives. 
And so we also talked about, unfortunately, how they can encounter stereotypes. Um, there are stereotypes that women with disabilities, you know, can't be believed, they're not trusted um, or they're not capable in lots of ways. I mean, that absolutely needs to change. There are a lot of misconceptions and stereotypes about uh, women with disabilities that are super problematic. And there's a lot more that could be done. There's a lot more that could be done on the part of platforms, on communities, of police and of services. It's pretty challenging to, because our disability and our domestic violence sectors can be quite separate. They're very interconnected, but they can be quite separate. And so it can make help seeking really challenging navigating that too. So I guess that's quite a bit of what we found. Uh, we also spoke to advocates and practitioners in the disability space, in the domestic violence space, in the sexual violence space, in the tech education space. And they did talk about challenges navigating all those systems. And like women, they said that there can be a number of different perpetrators. So there can be intimate partners, there can be family and friends, uh, there can be unknown people as well, and there also can be carers. Uh, and they're not also always separate kind of categories. So there's a lot of different channels of abuse that happen. We also found that workers themselves didn't always know where to go to get help. And they were doing a lot of innovative things, developing their own guides and trying to make connections with people in other sectors. Uh, but it's quite challenging for them too. So I guess we found a lot of barriers, but we also found a lot of suggestions for change. And we found a lot of, I guess, community attitudes also also need to change. I, I just say going forward, I think it's really important that there is more work done with women with cognitive intellectual disabilities because um, they're voices that need to be heard. As, you, as you've mentioned, it's an issue that's often overlooked and there is a tendency just to expect them to change their behaviours or to stop using technology. And they have solutions. They have really good ideas about what needs to happen. They had ideas about what platforms could do to better assist them. Uh, so it's it was work that was really satisfying to do in that I really felt like there's a lot of work that needs to be done and I hope that that contributes to building this evidence-based and certainly these safety commissioners produce some amazing resources for women and workers that might refer to some things particular to Australia but I think really are more widely applicable. I think they have international relevance. I, I must admit, I hadn't considered that the assistive role of technology as a as a tool to enable people to live a, a, a full and fruitful life. It makes sense now that you've said it, but I just I just hadn't thought about that at all. Yeah. Please don't tell people not to use not to use technology. Yeah, I mean, it's really not fair because we are putting then the burden on you know people who are being victimised as opposed to trying to change and prevent the perpetration of harm. How about with relationships? Um, part of the complication with technology and and say intimate partner violence is that the relationship between the ownership and the control of the device get, becomes complicated. How about with a a caregiver? Uh, well, I mean, and certainly intimate partners can can be carers. So they, they talked a lot about intimate partner abuse and technology, but did also mention, for instance, you know, carers, friends, family. Uh, and absolutely, if anybody else has access to the device. And one thing a, a tech educator had said to us is sometimes carers or whoever will just say, oh, just give me, give me the device or let me have a look of it and I'll, I'll do this or I'll help with that. 
Um, and they said, you know, people can be doing absolutely anything on the device and they can be changing, can be changing settings. And the second you give it to somebody else, so many things could be happening. So absolutely that access to the device is potentially very problematic if somebody has access to passwords, accounts, or can change any of the settings, especially in COVID. It could be hard to help seek if someone has access to your devices or has changed settings or, for instance, is allowing some kind of surveillance on your, your device. It's incredibly hard for you to then help seek or get access to anybody else, especially during times like lockdown. It's hard to know what to do. And that's why I was so impressed with the, um, the safety by design principles. How did these come about? Because I, I had not heard of these at all and I, I really feel like I should have. So there are a couple of um, people in different spaces, uh, for instance, in the tech industry, in the domestic violence industry, that have been working around ideas about safety by design. But safety by design as a concept is something that the eSafety Commissioner has really pushed uh, and has a few different principles that they have developed after consultation with a whole range of, of different groups and different uses of technology. And the first idea is that we really need to be thinking about the tech industry as responsible for making user safety that, that number one priority. And that means that you have to really consider how technology could be weaponized, so how it might facilitate or increase or encourage harm. And the burden of safety shouldn't be falling on the user. It should be something that is prioritized by the tech industry. So it means thinking about design and development and ways that you might essentially engineer out potential misuse or ways that technology is weaponized. And then the next principle is really about recognising that all users should have the freedom, the power, the autonomy to make decisions about their best interest. And for that to happen, platforms have to have dialogue with a lot of different user groups, but it really ideally also not just engage but collaborate with these groups. It means recognising that you do have diverse users, you do have intersecting structural oppression. It means recognising that risk is not universal. So it means that you have to think about different ways that people use technology, different ways that technology could be weaponised. It means that you have to be thinking about making reporting regulation pathways really easy for all of those groups. And it means that you are thinking about things like really default kind of settings and robust privacy and safety settings that are that are just uh, sort of a matter of course. And then the next idea is that you do have the third principle is that you have transparency and you have accountability. And that means that you have things like you have published safety guides. It means that you're really open about regulation pathways. And it also means that you're sharing strategies about what works well with regulation with other agencies. We all should be kind of on the same page and really information sharing around that. For all of that to happen, we do absolutely need to have more diversity in the tech industry. That, that's also something that the ECT Commissioner absolutely recognised because one of the challenges I think we have is that a lot of the people who are making the big decisions, especially around our major platforms, and a lot of the people who are designing and developing, you know, they are from particular groups and they're not representative of the broader population. And so they're not intending to design unsafe technologies or technologies can be weaponized, but they're not always thinking about all of the issues and all of the all of the user groups that might that might be harmed. 
So it really is about quite a transformative approach. But one of the really great examples that they give when they're talking about safety by design is, uh, you know, things like things like seatbelts and all of the safety functions that we have in cars are things that we now almost take for granted and they're just kind of automatic. And ideally, safety by design in the tech industry could become just like that. We could, as a matter of course, be really thinking about how we design, develop and regulate tech in a way that is inclusive, in a way that recognises diverse needs, in a way that puts the user and all users really in that central position and, and really thinks about risk management and risk mitigation as a matter of course, not as an afterthought or something that comes into play down, down the line, but something that is there at the very, the very start. The allegory of, of motor vehicles is quite, a, quite an interesting and a good one. Um, I really like the fact that there's just three as well. Do you think um, are these achievable things, or or have we been making progress towards this? Yeah, I think we have been making progress. They've also these safety officials also got a lot of resources and assessment tools that I think are being used and could be used more widely to help different tech industries. One of the things that is certainly changing is we are getting really great researchers and some of the leaders in the domestic violence and domestic violence and technology spaces are getting jobs at platforms, are working with platforms a lot more. And so they are, I think, also largely the credit for this change that is happening. Sometimes, though, I think, unfortunately, what we see is different companies almost shamed into then doing the right thing. Uh, so Google, for instance, was advertising um, different bioware for a very long time, thanks to the work of advocates and also researchers about how that was being used by partners to spy on a targets that was removed. Would that have happened otherwise? I'm, I'm not sure, but there was certainly a lot of media attention that that really pushed that decision. Uh, I'd like to think that it is a desire for user safety, but sometimes I do think being shamed into doing things is how we're seeing change around safety by design. There is more consultation with agencies, and so that's happened, for instance, with the National Network to End Domestic Violence in the US, which has for decades done amazing work around technology and domestic violence. So they've been engaged by, I think it was Facebook more recently, a number of different a number of different agencies anyway in their thoughts about developing technology so that it is becoming more and more common there is certainly a long way to go I think and unfortunately certainly with that last principle around transparency and accountability that is far more selective than anything else we really don't see a lot of reporting on platforms uh, by platforms on on user safety on complaint mechanisms so that might be the hardest to change at the moment. I'd love it if we did see much more accountability. But sometimes it has also been frustrations of consumers have really influenced advertisers and that has had an impact on um, particularly social media platforms. So there's a number of different factors in there, but the more natural it becomes, the more common it becomes, that's where we're really going to see change, where, where it is just automatic. Automatically, you start to engage with different groups when you're developing this new technology. Because unfortunately, what I think happens too often is, is there'll be a, a change in an app that happens or, or there'll be something new that's launched and my first thought will be, oh, well, I can see how that's going to be weaponized. And I certainly thought about that with um, Apple's AirTags when that happened. And that's what we don't want to see. We don't want to see... Things released, and I mean, it's it's a thing that your your survivors and advocates will just be like, oh, I can already see how that's going to be problematic. 
Um, whereas sometimes we have companies that think that they've released something that's going to be really great and help us find our keys or help us, you know, connect with other people in our lives. And it would be just really great if we never have those oh no moments about, I can see how this is going to go wrong. The, the story of Apple and their air tags is quite an interesting one too, because they had to make a change after the product had been released, right? They, how, how did they change it? Yeah, so it now will uh, beep at different intervals when it's away from the original purchaser. But my understanding is that there are some glitches or issues with Android. So that certainly will okay. happen in terms of um, Apple technologies. But when it's used around Androids, I'm, I'm less sure that those changes have been affected. And that's just been based on some um, coverage I've seen just more recently in the US. So the idea is that if someone's bought it, to spy on you and they slip it into your bag, it'll start beeping after a while, after it moves away from, from their phone. Yeah, yeah, so it will start beeping. I mean, we never should have really got to that point, but, yes, they certainly did make changes and they look, I mean, we always want to commend agencies, I think, when they are doing this, when they are looking at bugs to fix things. But I even thought that we had changes to some of the COVID apps in Australia and I was thinking, oh, there's some information that's now being shared that's problematic that I, I doubt they realised was problematic, but immediately, you know, domestic violence agencies were, were picking up on this and we need to let people know that this has changed. When Snapchat, I'm not on Snapchat, but they had some function, I remember around location sharing that had changed and it had just changed automatically with an update. And I think we always want to have technology that is much more opt-in. So it's not a default that changes, it's an opt-in to have this particular function activated. Because otherwise you're expecting people to always know what's happening with updates or you're always expecting people to know how technology is going to be misused. You can save yourself some front page news, I guess. Absolutely. Well, I'm so glad to hear that all of the work you've been putting in over the last couple of years is, is at least as, as a collective of, of all of the... Well, I'm not giving you responsibility for all of the work done by all of the researchers who've been doing um, work on uh, technologically facilitated domestic violence, but you have been very active, so I'm going to give you a fair proportion of that. So congratulations on, on some of the positive changes that have been made and, and some of the... It's, it's nice to see that good research is, is, is helping people in a, in a positive kind of way. Oh, thank you. I mean, that's, that's very generous, I think, um... We're lucky in this space that we've got fantastic government and non-government agencies in Australia, a lot of people doing work overseas, and, and really survivors. We've got a lot of survivors who are very engaged in this issue and, you know, pushing for change. So it, it's been a really good space to work in that I feel progress is being made. We've, we've got a way to go, but progress is being made. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Now, if you're involved in cyber, you often get asked questions on everything from the gaming performance gains of liquid cooling to the legality of files for printing AR-15 receivers. Best way to get ahead of those wild questions is to pester an expert. We happen to have cornered one on digital forensics. Dr. James is a trainer, lecturer and consultant for digital investigations and somehow while training police officers and consulting for the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime has also managed to maintain a great blog and a YouTube channel, both called dfir.science. Dr. James also tolerates my inane questions, so let's take advantage of that and ask him this. When I watch detective shows on TV, they always get the analysis of the evidence back from the lab at about sort of five to seven minutes into the episode. 
really seems kind of trivial. I understand in the real world it takes a little bit longer than that. Why is that? Why does it take so long? Oh, man. It's a bit complicated <laughs> because there's so many factors at play. The big one really is that digital evidence is still a new concept to a lot of people. Even though mobile devices are in basically every type of case now, law enforcement agencies just aren't really equipped to handle it. And I'm talking about every country that I've worked in. It's still a relatively new thing. You don't have a lot of first responders trained up on how to deal with mobile devices, for example. But if they're in 98% of your cases, you'd think that that would be a priority. But the funding and the training is difficult to actually push out everywhere. So part of it is that law enforcement agencies just aren't there yet. They don't have enough people basically to deal with it, especially in the country like the U.S. It's just huge. And then um, you have a lot of especially rural areas where it's difficult to get even a sheriff in the town. But now you also need potentially a digital expert that it's really difficult to, to ask. So a lot of cases are coming in with a lot of different types of digital evidence, and they're not just cybercrime. They are every type of crime. But the way that most police agencies kind of set themselves up is they have a, a computer crimes unit. So that unit, while they initially dealt with you know, computer crime investigations, also started getting in a lot of you know, murder investigations. Well, the murder investigation kind of took priority because it's, it's, I mean, it's somebody's life is on the line. We're looking for a murderer. And then those units never really expanded. And those skills also didn't really expand in a lot of units. Some units are doing very, very well. Um, but uh, a lot of units don't push those out. They say, oh, the computer crimes unit can handle everything. Well, the computer crimes unit is handling now, you know, 98% of cases in, in police, at least a part of it. So backlogs are coming from just the way that police were structured. The fact that computer crime... Even though it doesn't feel like a new topic, it is very new in the way that we're dealing with it. And the technologies are always changing. And that means that trained experts, it's not enough to get a one-week training once a year. You can, you can kind of use some tools if you do that, but you're not going to be able to do a full investigation by yourself, for example. So definitely a skill shortage and keeping those skills up to date is a huge, huge problem in law enforcement. So kind of the structures of law enforcement, I would say, is one of the big uh, problems with backlogs, but also just the amount of data. Think about your computer 10 years ago and all the hard drives and devices and everything you have now. I, I think I saw a phone's coming out with a one terabyte hard drive. It's like, okay, now investigators are going to have to not only collect all of that data whenever they're analyzing phones, which happens all the time, right? We have a huge backlogs on phones pretty much everywhere. But all of that data needs to be processed. Law enforcement tends to be also limited in processing because we can't, for example, push all of our processing out to a cloud service provider. We usually have to use disconnected laboratories to actually process everything in, which means that if your laboratory hasn't received a budget increase in the past five years, you don't have any new processing systems to process all of that data that's coming in. So if everything gets slower over time and budgets don't tend to increase over time. Um, so kind of all of those things come into it. Data structures are also a lot more complicated. Like technologies themselves are advancing. So at the software level, we have a lot more different types of data structures that are more complicated, sometimes more security focused, a lot more encryption coming in. All of that takes time to deal with. There's no magic button for any of that. So yeah, it, most cases aren't, you give me a, a disk and I can get to it in, in five minutes and I'll have the answer for you. It's a little bit different now, but usually I would, I would estimate processing. If I got a hard drive right now and I could actually work on it right now, 
it would take at least 24 hours to process, and that doesn't include the analysis. So we're really, for a lot of different types of analysis, you're looking at at least four to five days for analysis. So 24 hours for processing, if you have a nice system and you can actually get to the case, one week for the analysis minimum is, is what you're looking at. And then you might only have 10 examiners in your lab and you have 700 cases coming in per day. <laughs> so um, that's a recipe for, for backlogs. I'm not great at maths, but I can, I can understand what that works out <laughs> <laughs> to try to deal with that a little bit better, a lot of organizations have started implementing what we call triage. So attempting to triage the disks, because whenever we ran experiments in a lab I was working in, we put in triage and we found out that about 30% of the data that we get in does not need a full investigation. But before we didn't have a procedure for kind of triaging that data, which means that 100% of the devices we get in get a full investigation because you don't want to miss you know, somebody abusing children or something like that. Instead, we can remove now maybe 30% of that data and then just focus on the, the high priority ones. We won't necessarily remove them from the case. We just will deprioritize them. And then if other data leads us back to them, then we'll, we'll still do a full investigation. But that saves just massive amounts of time by itself. Uh, there's some triage tools that can work quite quickly. So you could probably have a triaged answer, maybe an hour, I'd say but you couldn't rely on it. You don't know the actual truth. Now you might just get lucky and find some very incriminating evidence from the triage and be like, yeah, there's something here, definitely. But you wouldn't know the full story behind it. Right. So for example, if I found illegal images from a triage investigation, now my second problem and the big problem in cybercrime in general is, is it the suspect that actually put them there? That's the, that's the important question for the case. So I know that this computer or phone might be relevant to the case, but I still haven't even started to to think about who did it and and actually build out that case. So um, triage definitely helps, but it's not a cure. Uh, we kind of need to rethink, every country kind of needs to rethink how we're doing things because um, so much data is coming in now and just not enough people, not enough uh, resources to process it all. A big thanks to Dr. James for his help answering my questions about digital forensics and a massive thank you to Dr. Harris for her time and thoughts to get us started on the new year with a proactive and positive mindset. Dr. James will be back next episode to answer some more questions about digital forensics. But in the meantime, this has been Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research and its researchers. While it's produced by me, it's only made possible by the kind guests who share their time and their research. You can find out more about the show at cybercrimology.com and you can talk to me at at cybercrimology on Twitter.